My name is Katie from wellnessmama.com, and I'm so excited to be able to be here today to talk with Chris Kresser, who writes at chriscresser.com. And I've been a huge fan of his work and his website for a really long time, and especially recently his Healthy Baby Code, because there's so much research about how important a mom's diet before and during and after pregnancy are, and Chris is such an expert in this area. So welcome, Chris, and I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, Katie. Uh, well, I I got into this whole world of health and wellness the same way a lot of people get into it, which is with my own struggles. And um, in, a, in a general sense, I dealt with a pretty serious chronic illness for about 10 years that I eventually recovered from through a combination of nutrient-dense diet and uh, healthy lifestyle, some smart supplementation. But more specifically, as it relates to fertility and nutrition for fertility and pregnancy, my wife and I uh, started trying to conceive a, a few years back, I guess about five years ago. And after about a year and a half of trying, uh, we hadn't been successful. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this or watching this can relate to that. It's really frustrating, especially for someone like me who is so interested in health and you know was a healthcare practitioner and helping other people with the same problem. So I took a pretty deep dive um, into the scientific literature at that point to try to figure out what was going on and, and piece together a strategy that would work for us to enable us to conceive naturally. I mean, we were open to assisted reproductive technology if necessary, but we wanted to really try to um, optimize our health so that our bodies could naturally conceive. That was our first goal. and. Uh, fortunately, we were able to do that. Um, we have now a very healthy daughter, Sylvie, who just turned three last week, and uh, she's been the blessing of our lives and has brought us so much joy. So uh, after we conceived, I realized that the knowledge that I had gained during that process was would be helpful to other people, and I wanted to share it. So I did a local workshop here in Berkeley. Um, where I taught the information and it sold out within a few hours so I figured that we might be on to something and and then decided to make that workshop available um, you know globally via um, my website and that became the Healthy Baby Code so um, since then I've had the pleasure of hearing from lots and lots of women and men actually who follow the Healthy Baby Code and who've, uh, who've conceived even after, in some cases, years of, of being diagnosed with, quote, infertility and being told that there was no way that they'd be able to conceive naturally and that they should, you know, just consider adoption or, or maybe only um, IVF or something like that. I still get uh, pictures from, from uh, parents who've conceived and, you know, with their healthy baby code baby, which is really fantastic. And and probably of all of the different things that I do, I'm, I'm more passionate about this because, and I don't have to tell you this, Katie, because this is what you do every day, but there's really no nothing more important than the health of our children and our families. And um, they are the future generation. And if, if, if our children aren't healthy, then we don't really have anything. So, um, and I know firsthand the, the frustration that comes with not being able to conceive and then the joy that comes from making that happen. So it's, I'm, I'm excited about this. That's awesome. And your daughter is gorgeous. I've seen the pictures you posted online. She's beautiful. Thank and you. 
Yeah, she's gorgeous. And I know that a topic both of us are really interested in researching and that we write about a lot is the importance of that pre-pregnancy diet and mm-hmm. pregnancy diet and nutrition and environment and stress and all those factors during pregnancy, before pregnancy, during breastfeeding, that whole phase. And um, I know you've done a lot of research on this. So could you explain that and talk about the connection between those factors and a child's lifelong health? Sure. And that's a, it's a really important topic. And the strange thing about it to me is that so few people really understand that. It's not something that we're taught in school. It's not even part of the dominant health message that we get. A lot of doctors, in fact, up until pretty recently told women that nutrition didn't really influence fertility or even pregnancy, which just blows my mind. But Traditional cultures have known this for millennia. Uh, in, in most hunter-gatherer cultures, they have special preconception diets that they, rec- that they give to, you know, you know special foods that, 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 that mothers and fathers-to-be will eat uh, in order to in- increase their chances of having a healthy baby. And they didn't, need, they didn't have any science, of course, to figure that out. They just figured that out over uh, hundreds of thousands of you know thousands of generations hundreds of thousands of years and uh, we're only now beginning to catch up to in terms of our understanding with modern science and in fact there uh, there is a whole theory on this called the developmental origins of health and disease theory um, which they refer to as DOHAD which is I think kind of a funny acronym but um, it was first proposed by a British researcher named David Barker back in the 80s to explain a contradiction that nobody could really figure out at that point, which was that as British prosperity increased, so did rates of heart disease. And so Barker went around all these different parts of Britain and he found that the highest rates of heart disease were in the poorest places in Britain. But rather than smoking or dietary fat or some other lifestyle cause being uh, the issue, the factor that was most predictive of whether someone would develop premature heart disease, like before the age of 65, was actually their weight at birth. So he found that infants that were carried to full term with birth weights between 8.5 and 9.5 pounds had a 45% lower risk of heart disease later in life than infants that were born at five and a half pounds, you know, which would be premature low birth weight. They also had a lower risk of stroke, a 70% lower risk of insulin resistance, and a slightly lower risk of blood pressure later on in life. And when you look at the chart of the data, you, you just see that the, the risk declines, uh, the risk increases for all of those conditions in a linear way as birth weight uh, either goes above nine and a half pounds or drops below, you know, six, six pounds. So this was a big revelation. You know, up until that time, people didn't really make the connection between birth weight and risk of future disease later on, and they didn't make the connection between nutrition, um, prenatal nutrition leading up to conception to birth weight. So this was kind of a big dramatic shift in our understanding of these things. And then a whole bunch of research came later that really corroborated Barker's initial findings. So, for example, um, in a 2011 paper, researchers showed that the onset of metabolic syndrome uh, is is increasingly likely to occur with kids who have uh, been 
inadequately nourished during pregnancy. So in other words, if mom isn't eating a healthy diet during pregnancy, there's a greater chance of her, of her offspring, her ch children developing diabetes or other blood sugar disorders later in life. Um, there's also been similar studies that point to higher risk of breast cancer later in life, uh, higher risk of obesity, um, higher risk of autism spectrum disorders and conditions like ADHD. Um, really, it's it's. I don't, it seems like almost every day there's a new study published in this area, and um, the, there are several reasons for this, but uh, one of the theories is that poor nutrition, both before pregnancy and during pregnancy, causes changes in epigenetic changes. So what that means is it leads to changes in gene expression. You know, we all, we inherit genes from our parents, but it's the expression of those genes that determines our, our lifelong health or lack of health, as the case may be. And it's been shown that um, not eating the right foods before conception and then all through pregnancy can alter that epigenetic um, environment and then lead to uh, all kinds of problems later in life. So this is crucial information to know. Unfortunately, it's not really being um, disseminated the way that we would hope. A lot of doctors and even OBGYNs still aren't aware of this and are not having these conversations with their patients. So um, one of my goals is to really get the word out uh, on this important topic because um, you know, we all do the best that we can, and sometimes we already have kids. We and it's, it's you know we didn't eat the way we wanted to during pregnancy and before pregnancy, but it's never too late to start. So wherever you are right now, um, it's not too late to start to benefit from it yourself and for to have your kids or future children benefit from it. Yeah, and to me that makes so much sense that what they eat what the mom eats when the baby's literally being formed would have such an impact, but you're right, doctors don't. Having been through this now five times myself, I know right. that their advice is, um, you know, lots of healthy whole grains and like low-fat yogurt and keep your calories low so you don't gain too much weight. And it's right. really scary when you think of all the early inductions and C-sections that happen that create low birth weight babies that could have other, otherwise been healthy. Yeah, I'm not sure if you saw this, Katie, but there was a study that recently came out, I think about a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's a lot of reasons why C-section is not desirable in terms of future health of the baby. One of the biggest is the changes that it causes in the gut microbiome. Um, we know that babies that are born vaginally, that's their first exposure to the mother's natural microbiota, you know, flora through the, the birth canal. Um, and exposure to the bodily fluids uh, through the vaginal birth, and that sets the stage for a healthy develop, you know, the development of a healthy gut microbiome, which we now know is is really crucial for overall health. But this study looked at it from a different angle. Um, they found that babies that are born by a C-section have again changes in in the epigenetic expression of genes, and in fact, that babies born to C-section there's a difference in how their their stem cell the stem cells are methylated and this gets kind of complicated but the simple explanation for methylation is that it determines which genes get turned on and which genes get turned off and since genes control all proteins and enzymes in the body basically the turning on and turning off of genes regulates everything and this study showed that 
C-section causes changes in the way genes are methylated and then in turn can, this is what explains why C-section is associated with so many, higher risk of so many different issues later on in life. And again, this isn't to make anyone who's had a C-section feel guilty. No, nobody goes into, well not nobody, but most pe women don't go into pregnancy saying I'm going to, I'm going to have a C-section. You know, most choose to have a natural birth. Uh, and something goes wrong, but it does highlight the importance of nutrition because good nutrition is one of the best ways that you can protect yourself from from that kind of event happening. Absolutely, and I'll reiterate that. I'm the last one to judge. I had a C-section for placenta previa. It saved my life. Obviously, it wasn't ideal, but medicine definitely has its place when it's needed, and it's very Absolutely. valuable, not every single time. And yeah, and the, the, I mean the trend that's disturbing to me is the increase in planned C-sections, especially around the world. I mean in some countries like Brazil, I think it's 80 or 90 percent, which is just horrifying. Uh, it's on the rise in China, and uh, I, I can't remember the most recent statistic in the U.S., maybe you know, Katie, but it's, it's higher than it should be. And I think that's largely in part because women don't, haven't been educated about this stuff. They don't understand what the risks are with C-section. And uh, I've never been through birth, but we had Sylvie at, uh, my wife delivered Sylvie at home, so I was there watching. And uh, I can understand the fear that women have uh, to go through that process. It looked painful, um, but it also looked beautiful and, and, and joyous. And uh, I think if more women understood that C-section is not just a harmless procedure that makes birth more convenient and less painful. Um, there wouldn't be so many planned C-sections. Exactly, and I'm yet to hear a doctor explain anything about methylation or gut bacteria transfer or any of that, but I hope right. that's part. And, um, and, but one thing that's encouraging, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of this research too, is that when you talk about epigenetics, that even though these things may be um, influenced by the birth process and by the mother's pregnancy diet, they're still not set in stone. And even yep. the child's diet the rest of their life can turn on and turn off genes. And so I'd love for you to talk about, um, from a practical standpoint, what are some of the foods that traditional cultures ate and that moms should be eating when they're pregnant, and even kids who maybe didn't have the optimal pregnancy experience, but that now when it, their moms are trying to improve their kids' health now. Sure. So when you look at the preconception and pregnancy diets in these traditional cultures, you see a number of common themes. You know, of course, it varies from culture to culture, the, the specifics of it. But you see a lot of traditional fats like butter or ghee, coconut oil, um, palm, palm oil, um, you know, avocados, things like that. Um, in the cultures that eat dairy, you'll see consumption of dairy fat, which is high in fat-soluble vitamins. Um, I'll, I, I'm going to tell you what they ate, and then I'm going to tell you actually what modern science has told us about what's in that, which they never knew, of course. They just knew it intuitively. So um, then you have meat and poultry and fish, and of course those are high in really uh, bioavailable, which means easy to absorb protein and many other micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, etc. You had uh, egg yolks in particular were prized in many of these cultures. The yolks are rich in choline and biotin uh, and, and several other nutrients which play an important role in pregnancy. Organ meats like liver, for example, were also highly prized in these cultures because they're really nature's superfood. When you look at the nutrient profile of liver, 
and you compare it to um, all kinds of different foods, plants, plant foods, and even other muscle meats, it's, it's much higher in, in things like vitamin A, which are somewhat difficult to get from food and really important for pregnancy. Um, cold water, oily fish like salmon are, are, are prized, and that's uh, we know now that they're rich in, in the long-chain omega-3 fats like EPA and DHA, which uh, DHA is especially important for brain development and, and, and uh, the, the growth of the um, neural tissue in developing babies. Um, dark leafy greens like kale, collards, etc., very nutrient-rich, good sources of folate, which protects against neural tube defects and is important for both conception and a healthy pregnancy and carrying a baby through to full term. Um, bone broths and fattier cuts of meat that are rich in glycine, which helps balance out methionine and plays an important role in pregnancy. And then all kinds of fermented foods, of course, which are beneficial for the gut. So it's really a, a lot of the foods that you've been recommending, Katie, and, and I recommend to, to my readers. Um, very nutrient-dense, low in toxicity, anti-inflammatory, and th these are the foods that should be emphasized not only for general health but also for fertility and, and pregnancy. And, and, and that should be a surprise, right? The, the same foods that, we, that are good for us else, at, at other times are good for us during this crucial period. But I would say that there, it's even more important to get these to maximize your nutrient density while you're when you're trying to conceive or when you're pregnant or for that matter when you're breastfeeding. Yeah, definitely, I would agree 100%. And I'd love if you could talk about some of the um, the nutrients, especially we see a lot in mainstream medical literature about DHA. Thankfully, that's getting some yeah. press. Um, one that I heard about recently and that you talk a lot about really well is folic acid versus folate, and especially mm -hmm. for people who are struggling with problems methylating that. And what yeah. they, could you explain that? Sure. So uh, folic acid is um, the form that you typically see in vitamins, of the, and folate is the, uh, the natural form that is typically found in food. And this is vitamin B. It's, often, it's also referred to as vitamin B9. As I mentioned before, it's really important for protecting against neural cranial tube defects, which is um, one of the more common things that, that can go wrong during, during pregnancy. It's also important for carrying the baby through to full term and for conception in the first place. But there's been a misconception in terms of equating the effects of folic acid, which is the synthetic form that you get in, sup in many supplements, with the folates natural folates that you find in foods like uh, dark leafy greens or chicken liver. Um, some people have a reduced ability to, to metabolize the synthetic folic acid, and that unmetabolized synthetic folic acid can, has been shown to uh, potentially cause problems. So while folic acid does seem to protect against some of the uh, potential effects of folate deficiency during pregnancy, it can cause problems in people who are susceptible to that. And so I, I'm a, a big believer in, in if you are going to supplement with folate, uh, as I recommend that some women do in the Healthy Baby Code, that you choose a, uh, an active form of folate like 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate uh, 
uh, which which thankfully is more available now in some of the better supplement lines like Thorn and and Pure Encapsulations and Solgar and companies like that, because you'll get the same benefit um, that that you would get by taking folic acid in terms of the uh, pregnancy, but but you minimize the chance of any unmetabolized folic acid floating around in your blood and the problems that that can cause. Yeah, I'll vouch for that because I didn't find out till my last pregnancy that I have that MTHFR gene mutation. And right. so all the fol folic acid and all those supplements I wasn't even being able to use and it was probably putting me at risk for a lot of other problems. And so mm -hmm. I'm so glad to hear that it seems to be getting much more mainstream attention. I think it is, yeah. I'm seeing seeing a change in that, and a lot of people and patients who who work with me on fertility stuff are already aware of that, and and so I think the word is starting to get out. And then, of course, you can always increase your intake of folate-rich foods. Uh, chicken liver, I mentioned before, organ meats are a fantastic uh, nutrient-dense food, and and they're one of chicken liver in particular is one of the richest sources of folate. And I know a lot of people don't you know, may not enjoy eating straight up chicken liver, but you can make chicken liver pate, for example. A lot of people like pate and that's an easy way to get it in. And then dark leafy greens, um, like kale, collards, etc., are a good source of folate. And lentils, if you tolerate them, are a great are a good source of folate as well. Awesome. Well I'd love to switch gears a little bit. Can we talk about stress? Because I think a lot of people still have the idea that stress is just a mental thing. It doesn't really have a physical right unless it's, you know, stressing you out and you feel stressed. And um, I would love for you to talk about that. I know you've written about it, but especially in pregnancy or um, pre-pregnancy, what effect does stress have on the body and even the baby? Yeah, there, that's a great question. And there was, a, there was actually a, a new study, relatively new study, published in March of 2014 that the New York Times covered. And they found uh, what they, they took 400 women who were um, trying to have a, a baby and um, they tested their saliva for stress hormones, both alpha amylase and, and cortisol. And when they analyzed the uh, saliva samples, they found that the women who had the, the higher levels of stress hormones had the lower chances of conceiving. And um, the, the, when they sort of further analyzed the results, the women who had the kind of the longest standing chronic stress were at the greatest risk for infertility. In fact, they had double the risk of infertility than women who experienced less stress. And, you know, it's if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Um, when we're under a lot of stress, the body perceives that as a threat. And in its wisdom, it's not going to conceive readily in an environment where we're under threat. You know, that's just a protective mechanism, evolutionary mechanism that's that's you know, aimed at helping the species to survive. And uh, so, so that's one risk of of not managing stress is just uh, not conceiving at all. Another risk of stress is is when it's excessive during pregnancy, and because what will happen, what can happen there is a similar thing. Uh, from an evolutionary perspective is if the, if the woman is under a lot of stress during pregnancy then that can cause epigenetic changes in the baby that will lead to health problems down the line. So of course stress is part of life. I'm not suggesting that you need to be stress-free. Uh, that's not what it's about. It's impossible and, and there's even 
you know, uh, good forms of stress that help us to adapt and and grow um, both personally and and as a you know, as a species. So uh, it's not about eliminating stress; it's about managing the stress that we do have in our lives with things like yoga or meditation or mindfulness practice or exercise or spending time in nature or taking hot baths or getting a massage. I frequently remind my my patients that all of those things, though, as you said, Katie, people tend to kind of discount them and, and, and only get to them when there's time, which there never is when you're stressed, right? Um, these are as important, if not more important, I think, to conceiving. And uh, in the Healthy Baby Code, uh, we, we actually provide some guided uh, stress management audio programs uh, for women to listen to uh, and men because I I know both firsthand in my own experience and just from all the research I've done that that's really crucial. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so managing stress is obviously huge, but what are some other things, either food or lifestyle things, that should pretty much universally be avoided while, while a woman's pregnant? Well, um, yeah, so that, that, I mean, that's a good question. It's, there's... I'm I'm hesitant to speak in absolutes, but I mean you obviously want to minimize your exposure to toxins. So um, I think using personal care products that don't have a lot of chemicals or is another important thing that's rarely discussed. Um, we actually, in some cases, absorb more chemicals through our skin than we do through things that we put in our mouth because the skin as a barrier system isn't as effective at filtering some of that stuff out. So I think using good, um, you know, uh, greener home care and personal care products is, is, is important. I think uh, you want to really avoid processed, refined, inflammatory foods as much as possible. So the Highly, you know, highly refined flour, sugar, industrial seed oils like the refined vegetable oils you 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 see in most processed and and refined foods. Um, those those foods are are really low in terms of nutrient density. They they're some of them are almost completely devoid of any beneficial nutrients, but they've got a lot of substances in them that can can cause problems, uh, particularly for people who are susceptible, like gluten. You know, we know that up to one in ten people are gluten intolerant, and uh, if you eat gluten while you're gluten intolerant, that causes a whole autoimmune inflammatory or immune inflammatory reaction that can have repercussions not only for you but for the the developing baby. So, making sure you're eating real food and not eating junk is, uh, at, you know, on the most basic level, really important. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think those are the main ones that come to mind that we haven't already talked about. One question I know a lot of pregnant women have is um, there are obviously so many good nutrients in seafood and fish, but also there's a concern with mercury. So what's yeah. your take on that as far as... That's a great question, and um, it's, it's another one that there's a lot of misunderstanding about in the mainstream. Um, the EPA uh, and some other regulatory agencies have recently come out revising their guidelines on maternal on fish consumption for for pregnant women and for women who are trying to conceive they they raised them actually and said that 
women should make sure that they're eating at least eight ounces of of cold water fatty fish or you know EPA and DHA rich uh, rich fish a week because of the huge amount of research that that points to the benefit of the nutrients in fish for the developing baby. Um, you know, high quality absorbable protein, as I mentioned, selenium, one of the best sources of selenium, EPA and DHA in particular. I mean, seafood is really the only dietary source of DHA, EPA and DHA. There are plant foods like flax and walnuts that have shorter chain omega-3 fats that can, in theory, be converted into those long chain of fats like EPA and DHA, which really provide the benefit of, of omega-3s. But when you look at the research, you see that less than one-half of 1% 1 of those plant-based omega-3s gets converted into those beneficial long chain omega-3 fats like EPA and DHA. So for all intents and purposes, you know, pl those plant foods are not going to give you the EPA and DHA that you need, and so that's where eating fish comes in. Now, the, the two main concerns with fish consumption have been mercury and then more recently radiation from Fukushima. Th those are the questions that I get, at least. And it's true that, that we want to minimize, mercury is a, is a neurotoxin and we want to minimize our exposure to it as much as possible. And it makes sense from that perspective to choose varieties of fish that are naturally low in mercury. Um, these are, tend to be lower on the food chain, like uh, anchovies and sardines, but also uh, salmon. Some many forms of salmon are tend to be relatively low in mercury, and even mackerel and herring, which conveniently are all the best fish to eat in terms of their EPA and DHA levels. But there's another factor in this equation that a lot of people don't realize, and that's selenium and the protective role of selenium. And it turns out that the reason that mercury is harmful is that it, it deactivates these enzymes in our body called selenoenzymes that protect us from oxidative damage. And so if you eat a lot of mercury and there's, they, and there's not enough selenium in your body to pr produce those selenoenzymes, then you, you start to get oxidative damage and, and brain issues and all kinds of problems. Uh, and that's why high levels of mercury are associated with those kinds of, of issues in, in kids. But if you eat enough selenium, the selenium protects you against those effects. And, and the good news is that ocean fish, as I, I think I just mentioned, are, are 16 of the 25 highest sources of selenium in the diet are ocean fish. So the vast majority of ocean fish, with the exception of uh, swordfish, shark, pilot whale, which are species that not too many people I know are eating, um, are higher in selenium than they are in mercury, and therefore you can eat those relatively safely without any of the uh, harmful effects that mercury might cause. So uh, the takeaway there is, yes, fish consumption is very important for the developing baby's brain. Uh, it is probably smart just to stick with the lower mercury versions and since those are mostly the fish that you want to eat because they have the highest levels of EPA and DHA it works out pretty well. Now as for the radiation issue 
again, of course, we want to minimize our exposure to radiation as much as possible, but it's really important to put this into perspective. Um, there's a saying in toxicology that the dose makes the poison. And uh, as it turns out, we're exposed to low, low levels of radiation all the time. If you've been on an airplane recently, for example, you've been exposed to a significant, uh, a noticeable amount of radiation. When I, say, when I say noticeable, I mean measurable. I don't mean that it has any proven effects on human health. Um, you can fly across the country a few times a year, and that that amount of radiation is not has never been shown to have any harmful effects of uh, uh, on human health. So likewise, with the Fukushima issue, um, people have wondered about fish caught on the Pacific coast and, and whether uh, it's still safe to eat. And while there has been a, a, an increase, a measurable increase in, in radi radiation levels in some of those fish, it's still at levels that are far below the threshold that international regulatory agencies have determined is, is you know, uh, problematic for human health. So even if you were eating pretty huge amounts of fish, like over a pound a day that, that, that are caught on the Pacific coast, you still wouldn't exceed those thresholds. So for most people who are eating more like a pound of fish a week, I don't see any cause for concern. That's really good to know. What about things like probiotic-rich foods, um, and even do you suggest supplements for that? I know there's so much emerging research about gut bacteria and how it's passed on during the birthing process, and now they're even saying maybe during pregnancy as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's super important, and you know, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need to take any supplements, um, and. You know, perhaps in this world, if you have a healthy gut, you have no digestive symptoms, you don't have any chronic illnesses that have been linked to gut health, which is pretty much all chronic illness at this point, you're, you're healthy overall, um, you can probably get by with just um, eating a healthy diet and eating some fermented foods and some fermentable fiber, and that would be fine. Um, if you are dealing with any kind of chronic illness, if you have a history of digestive issues like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or IBS or inflammatory bowel disease or diverticulosis or anything like that, I think probably supplementing with some probiotics and maybe prebiotics more importantly, which I'll come back to in a second, would be a wise precaution to take. So. Um, I don't think there's one sing there, as a single factor. I think the the gut health of, of the mother may be one of the may be the most important that determines the you know the overall the health of the baby. And that's that may sound like a bold claim, but um, the more research we see in this area, the more clear it becomes that 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 the gut the the gut health of the mother is the is the main determining factor of the gut health of the baby because the baby is, as I said earlier, initially exposed to the first bacteria <coughs> that will colonize its gut in the birth canal. So um, mom's flora is what the baby is, is going to form the, the kind of imprint of baby's flora and so that makes it really important for the mother to pay attention to that during pregnancy, preconception and pregnancy period. So what I recommend in Healthy Baby Code is eating a lot of fermented foods. So this could be um, things like sauerkraut, beet kvass, uh, kimchi, 
dairy ferments, if you tolerate dairy, like kefir or yogurt. Uh, water kefir is another option for kefir if you don't to tolerate dairy products. Kombucha is, is on the list too, although I don't find that it's generally as therapeutic as some of these other ferments that I just mentioned. Um, so that's one, one important thing. And then uh, food, both foods and, and supplements with a prebiotic effect are important. So the difference between a probiotic and a prebiotic is that probiotic is the actual bacteria itself, the beneficial bacteria. Prebiotic is food for that beneficial bacteria. So when we eat foods with prebiotic effect, it increases the, the, the numbers of beneficial bacteria that are already in our gut. And it provides a food source for any probiotics that we're taking in via fermented foods or, or capsules. So um, studies have shown recently in the last few years that prebiotics have an even more important effect on the long-term increase of beneficial bacteria. That probiotics are really important. They, they, they kind of tune and regulate our immune system. They play a lot of important roles for gut health, but they don't quantitatively increase the levels of beneficial bacteria over time. That's what prebiotics do. So there are a lot of foods that, that are have fibers in them that are fermentable by the bacteria in our gut and they thus provide a, a substrate that those bacteria can use. So we're talking about things like um, soluble fiber found in all kinds of different fruits and vegetables and starchy tubers like sweet potatoes and potatoes. There's resistant starch that can be found in potatoes, that white potatoes that have been cooked and cooled or lentils and legumes, uh, green plantains perhaps. There is uh, non-starch polysaccharides like inulin and FOS and things that are found in, in, in onions and garlic and Jerusalem artichokes. Uh, so eating a really broad diversity of plants, of you know, fruits and vegetables and starchy tubers is a great start in terms of the fermentable fiber. But then you can also consider supplementing with prebiotic fibers like um, as I just mentioned, resistant starch, you, potato starch is one way you can do that. You can supplement with a, a prebiotic, which is a blend of the non-starch polysaccharides, um, prebiogen, which I have in my store is a good choice. Um, you can supplement with soluble fibers. A couple examples would be glucomannan or psyllium fiber. So there are a lot of different things that you can do to kind of all together to improve your gut health during as you're trying to conceive or during pregnancy. I'm so glad you touched on resistant starch because that's something I've been researching a lot lately. It's fascinating. Um, but it brings up another good point, which is there's so much debate with health in the health community on sugars and starches in general. So especially for um, preconception and pregnancy, what would you say is are good guidelines for starches and sugars, and is there any place for them at all, and does that change when you're pregnant? Yeah, good question. Um, just a clarification for some of your readers and listeners, uh, resistant starch is actually not absorbable by humans, so um, it, doesn't it doesn't affect blood sugar at all. If anything, actually it lowers blood sugar. And some of the some really interesting research has shown that, and, and also my clinical experience using it with patients, I've seen drops of 10 to 15 milligrams per deciliter of fasting blood sugar in some people who are using resistant starch. So uh, unlike other starches, it, it's not going to have a harm, uh, you know, it's not going to affect your blood sugar if you have 
type 2 diabetes or if you're you know on that blood sugar spectrum but in terms of starches in general uh, my recommendation in the healthy baby code is that women most women will do well on a, on a moderate carbohydrate diet during pregnancy rather than a very low carb diet and of course there are exceptions you know if a, if a woman has again like I said diabetes or uh, glu glucose intolerance you know high blood sugar blood sugar fluctuations reactive hypoglycemia anywhere on that blood sugar spectrum they'll probably do better with a lower carbohydrate diet uh, if you're at risk for gestational diabetes too but for if you're not, if your blood sugar is normal, um, then I think a moderate carbohydrate diet works best for most women. Um, pregnancy is a really energy-intensive process, right? There's a there's a great demand for energy in the body for this developing baby to thrive, and glucose is one uh, really usable form of energy, and it's it's readily found in starches and um, can really help women to just feel more balanced and more energetic during pregnancy, um, whereas a really low-carb diet can, I've seen it lead to uh, mood swings and, and irritability and fatigue and insomnia and things like that. So um, that's my general recommendation. I think minimizing sugar always makes sense. Um, but especially in pregnancy because it's 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 not nutrient dense it's in fact nutrient poor almost completely nutrient depleted um, and it's high, relatively high in calories so you're getting a lot of uh, caloric density and very little nutrient density and then there's the potential effect of sugar in terms of how it feeds pathogenic gut bacteria and that's another concern um, because of what we just talked about. So I think for most people, moderate carbohydrate intake is best. People with blood sugar issues, you know, really cutting cutting back on the carbs is probably going to help. And for everybody, um, lay, lay off the sugar as much as possible. Awesome. Well, and one question I get a lot that you're probably more qualified to speak on from everyone that you've worked with, and I have no personal experience, is um, what about women who have been on hormonal contraceptives and are having infertility issues? And I mean, there's so much research on how those can affect hormones, obviously, but also the gut and just many reactions in the body. So what if a woman has been on contraceptives and is now trying to conceive or just trying to get off contraceptives? What are some, some steps she can take to balance her hormones again? Yeah, that's a great question. And I do see a fair amount of that in my practice. There's actually a term called post-birth control syndrome, which re refers to this collection of signs and symptoms that women can experience when they're um, getting off of contraception. And, and one of the, the issues with long-term contraception um, and, all, and, uh, and hormone replacement, for that matter, is that it really causes it can wreak havoc on the natural production of hormones in a woman's body and um, those hormones have to be eliminated and detoxified any excess hormone in the body has to be eliminated and detoxified via the, the liver and kidneys the, the typical detoxification system but when you've been taking hormones for a really long time that detox system can get backed up and um, you get an accumulation of hormones and then that can lead to things like infertility or um, you know uh, any number of other symptoms that are related to hormone imbalance so 
one of the best things to do, of course, the, the first thing to do is always to clean up the diet. And uh, you know, assuming that's been taken care of, another thing that to focus on is liver detoxification and improving liver function. So um, there are a number of ways you can do that, uh, a number of substances that are important there. Glutathione is one of them, um, N-acetylcysteine and alpha-lipoic acid. Uh, milk thistle is a is a botanical that I'm sure a lot of people have heard of that has a great um, has a good effect on liver. Um, there are a number of sort of detox uh, supporting products. I the supplement line that I created with Rob Wolf, we have we created a, a, a product that would that would for the, for this exact purpose called Adapt to Clear. Um, because there weren't a lot of products that I really liked on the market that did exactly what I wanted them to do. Um, and this is one of the biggest problems that, that Rob and I both saw in women who were coming off of, uh, who were struggling. You know, when they first switched to a nutrient-dense diet, um, they weren't getting the experience that other women were getting. And, and one of the main reasons for that is this impaired detox capacity. So. Um, it's definitely possible to deal with this. Uh, you may be, a, may be able to deal with it on your own. Uh, in some cases, it may be necessary to find a good functional medicine uh, practitioner and work with them, do some testing on your hormone levels and, and your detox capacity. Um, another thing to look at is your uh, adrenals. Uh, oftentimes, women are experiencing hormone issues, are also uh, experiencing like the HPA axis, adrenal fatigue, kind of constellation of signs and symptoms. And, and so there, um, the important things would be making sure you're managing your stress, you're getting enough sleep, um, you're not overtraining or overdoing it physically, that's really important as well, and um, you know, nurturing yourself as much as possible. Awesome. Well, kind of to tie it back to where we started, um, I would love for you to just tie this back into epigenetics and give some hope to people who maybe are past their childbearing years or who have kids who now maybe have health problems or even as adults have health problems and talk about how um, epigenetics, we can still turn genes on and off even as adults and how diet and lifestyle are able to really make a difference in those areas even if you're not pregnant. Absolutely. Yeah, as I said in the beginning, it's never too late to start. Uh, I have some patients who are in their 80s who have recently started, you know, done a 30-day reset from my book and are feeling, you know, better than they have in decades, according to them. And their their mental clarity has increased, their memories increased, they're able to interact with people around them in a way that they, you know, didn't think was going to be possible in, you know, in, in the rest of their lifetime. And and they're just enjoying themselves in a way that they hadn't they hadn't been for years. So it's really heartening to see that. And that's a great example of how um, it isn't ever too late for for us to change and to experience the benefits of dietary changes, both because of the epigenetic factors that you mentioned, Katie, and also because of the effects, just the effects of nutrients on our cells and the effects of food on our gut microbiome. There was a study that came out recently that found that um, eat, changing the way we eat can, in as, in as little as three days, have a pretty profound effect on the gut microbiome. And those bacteria produce all kinds of chemicals and substances that directly affect our health. So, you know, within a few days, you can see changes when you switch to a more nutrient-dense diet. And 
um, it's uh, it's really for me I just I think there's not very much that's more important in life you know if we don't have our health um, it's very unlikely that we're going to be able to live the life that we want to live and in fact one of the my favorite definitions of health which I've often um, used is the the ability to live your dreams and I really like that because it it makes us draw draw the connection between good health and and you know feeling energetic and calm and centered and all the things that a nutrient-dense anti-inflammatory diet can do for us with being able to go out in the world and 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 do the things that we want to do make a contribution serve other people and and live a happy and successful life and that's at the end of the day that's what it's all about awesome i love that that quote about health and um i also wanted to really make a mention to my readers that I bought your Healthy Baby Club when it first came out because I happened to be pregnant at the time. Oh, great. And it is just, I mean, so much information and so practical because I know so many products, it's like you get all the information and then you're like, what do I do? And yours is very, uh -huh. it has the action guides and everything. And, um, and I'd love for you to touch on it a little bit more, but also to tell everyone that um, if they go to wellnessmama.com forward slash go, forward slash healthy baby code, all one word, that that will take them directly to the healthy baby code site so they can read about it. And I think you've even offered um, a discount code for the next two weeks. So can you talk about the healthy baby code specifically? Sure, sure, yeah. So as I said before, this really came out of my own experience, my wife, our struggle conceiving, and, and then my desire to find a natural way, a natural solution. And uh, hundreds of women have used used it now, used the information, have successfully conceived even despite being told that they were infertile uh, and they would never conceive naturally by their doctors. Uh, I've, I've just, it's so, so amazing to hear reports from women like that. It really, every time I hear one, it completely makes my day. And um, and as you said, it's it's really a practical program. It's it's I do touch on the research quite a bit because that's important to me and, and, and I like everyone to know that the recommendations that I'm making in the program come from you know scientific evidence from peer-reviewed journals um, but that's not the focus of the program the focus of the program is exactly what you should eat and do in order to optimize your chances of conceiving having a healthy pregnancy carrying the baby through to full term but we don't stop there we also talk about how to um, you know the importance of breastfeeding, how long you should breastfeed, uh, how to eat while you're breastfeeding, and then how to introduce first foods when your baby starts to eat, which is uh, of course um, a, a, an important topic that is often overlooked. So um, we have six modules. We've got video, uh, I think over six hours of, of video content. Uh, we've got cheat sheets and worksheets, things like. Uh, a one-page guide to all of the nutrients that you need to make sure you're getting and what the top food sources of those nutrients are, uh, nutrition, quick plant, quick references. As I said, we've got guided, some guided stress management resources, um, a meal plan for first foods and a sequence of how to reintroduce those foods uh, when the, after your baby is born. And uh, I've just tried to put everything in there that I could think of that would make it easier for you to find a natural solution, just like my wife and I did. And I'm really happy, Katie, to offer this to your community because it's obviously close to my heart, and it's I really 
as I said before, feel like it's the thing, in all the work that I do, it's one of the things that I'm most passionate about. And I know that your people are as well, and this is the work that you're committed to. So uh, we're happy to offer a 25% discount if you use the code wellnessmama and go to the link that you just said, Katie, and for the next two weeks, um, you can you know, take a huge big leap toward uh, increasing your chances of conceiving a, a healthy baby. And not just conceiving a healthy baby, but setting your baby up for lifelong health. And that's really the shift in our thinking here. It's not even just about conceiving naturally or having a healthy pregnancy. It's about giving your baby the best possible start for lifelong of health, and that's I think as a parent, that's really the best gift that we can give our our kids. Yeah, absolutely. And you see so many things that say, you know, do not take this if you are pregnant or may become pregnant, or X-rays. Don't get an X-ray if you're pregnant or may become pregnant. And your course is one thing that you absolutely should take if you are pregnant. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. They don't. They tell you what not to do, but they don't tell you what to do, right? Exactly. And yeah, I would really encourage anyone who's in that stage of life to go check it out and read your information on that page, which um, again is wellnessmama.com forward slash go forward slash healthy baby code, all one word. And anyone who's not in that stage of life should still definitely go to your blog, which is chriscresser.com. Is that correct? That's and right. Read yeah. all your because you um, do excellent with the research and making sure everything is backed by science, but also very practical. And I've been a big fan of yours for years, so I would really hope that my readers and listeners would go there and for anybody listening the link will be in the show notes and for anybody watching it'll be right below this video so you can check it out and um, well, Chris, I'm so honored that you were here thank you yeah. so much. thank you so much for having me on Katie it's been a pleasure I really enjoy getting to meet you in person recently I love the work that you're doing I think it's so important and I look forward to connecting with you again in the future Awesome, Chris, and yes, ditto everything. I love your work, and, and it was great to meet you as well, and thank you again for being here. Great. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Wellness Mama podcast, where I provide simple answers for healthier families. If you would like to get my seven simple steps for healthier families guide for free, head on over to wellnessmama.com and enter your email and I'll send it over to you right away. You can also stay in touch on social media, facebook.com forward slash endless wellness or on Twitter and Instagram at wellnessmama. And I would also really appreciate it if you would take a second and subscribe to this podcast so that you'll be notified of future episodes. And if you've ever benefited from something I've talked about on this podcast, I would be really appreciative if you would leave a rating or review since that's how others are able to find this podcast and so we can help spread the message. Thanks as always for listening and for reading and for being on board with creating a future for our children that's healthier and happier. And until next time, have a healthy week.